0: Well, it looks like we're at time. Shall we go ahead and get started? Welcome to our uh, class on Hebrews. We're going to be jumping back into Hebrews chapter 6, about to finish that up, and then into chapter 7. Let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so chapter 6, of course, um, somewhat famous, somewhat infamous, um, because of this uh, this difficulty of um, the section on apostasy. But again, this really serves the rhetorical point of the author of Hebrews all the way through. He's elevating Christ. He's showing Christ's divine status, his status in relation to the angels, how he is um, not only the king of uh, humanity, but also the king of the angels, true God, true man, one person and um, thus king of the universe and high priest over all of us as uh, sinners and over all of us as royal priests. And so why would you ever turn away from this, especially to Judaism? Even if it meant that um, you would avoid earthly suffering, why would you apostatize and re-crucify for yourself Christ Jesus? So may this be unthinkable. And that really is, uh, I think, a succinct summary of his rhetoric purpose point up to this point in the scriptures. So um, Hebrews 6, uh, we looked, I think, briefly at this section. Um, we'll look at it again here, uh, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. All right, let's talk about what's happening here in terms of the rhetoric. Um, if you return to, if you return to uh, Judaism to avoid persecution as a Christian, um, you're returning maybe the argument will go you're returning to abraham not so not so god made a promise to abraham a promise is received what by faith so we're already setting up that abraham is a is the father of the faithful a point that's going to be drawn out as we go on in our section today so Um, And God makes this promise to Abraham. And of course you have this business about, and we talked about this last week at length, so I'm not going to do it here, but God's swearing an oath. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And we're already seeing Abraham here as the patriarch of the faithful. This isn't just that Abraham's going to have a bunch of biological children, but more to the point, he's going to have a bunch of children by virtue of faith. Um, So, they also will believe in the promise of God. All right. Abraham has to wait patiently to obtain the promise. Um, And then when you get to 17, this point really gets brought home. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, we've just had Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. Now who are the heirs or inheritors of the promise? And that is all who have faith in Christ. At the heart of the promise to Abraham isn't just that he's going to be multiplied, but specifically that through him, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So there's a messianic promise at the heart of this. And then at the heart of this messianic promise is that all the other children of Abraham, who are children by faith, are going to have their hope, their faith set in this Messiah through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed okay so when we see this language in in verse 17 of heirs of the promise that's us and that's the first century christians that's all who share the same faith as abraham and thus abraham is our true father so again, um, verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, you're already with Abraham. You're already in the line of the faithful who have their faith and hope in the promise of God. Um, So there is no, what are you going to return to? Return to Abraham after the flesh? No, we have Abraham as the one who believed the promise and we are heirs of the promise. And so we wait with him. It's impossible for God to lie. All right, and then verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Kind of interesting uh, imagery here. And as far as I know, um, somebody jump in if they can think of another example. This is probably why in some Christian artwork and iconography the cross is drawn as an anchor. Have you seen this? Where the bottom is split and comes out as an anchor? We've got something like that on our pyramids, on our chrismans that hang on the Christmas tree. Um, so this is this is where that comes from, the cross as an anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul And then here, interesting, some mixed metaphors, I think, to be sure. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I don't think you can really blur these two together. Do you know of any way? um, This anchor of the soul and this hope that enters the inner place. I mean, because we're transitioning from like boat imagery of an anchor... I'm unaware of any temple imagery or any inner uh, holiest of holies imagery that involves an anchor. So um, it seems as though he shifts his metaphor very rapidly. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now that's the holiest of holies. So in a sense, he's fleshing out what this promise, what this hope consists of. Christ, who is the anchor of the soul. Christ is that hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's the holiest of holies. Um, Accompanying Jesus, as it were, where Jesus has gone, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's this last line that he launches off on. All right, well, let's see if we can clean this up. I don't know if we can if you look at the grammar um, you have at the end of verse 18 to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this, what the hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus Has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So the hope is what anchors the soul. The hope is what enters the veil where Jesus has gone. And I think my point is just of what does that hope consist? Quite obviously, Jesus. So to clean up the grammar, um, I don't think it refutes anything we've said, but to clean up the grammar, um, the hope is the anchor of the soul. The hope enters the inner place, enters the holiest of holies where Jesus has gone. So it's as if we're already with him by way of hope. And there he is gone, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which we've touched on briefly before, and we're going to touch on thoroughly here in a minute. So that hope of uh, Christ is an anchor to our soul, and it is a hope that already follows Christ into the uh, holiest of holies um, now when hope is uh, is fulfilled you know my kids are all hoping that school will be ended soon James already has a countdown he made me ask Siri he figured out the date and I had to ask Siri how many days until then and and then he put his schooling to work I was so pleased because he came up with this complex um, he he um, I forget exactly what he did, but he took, he took the numbers and then he subtracted the num- the days of the weekend and um, he came up with the actual school days that were remaining. I thought that was impressive. impressive. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And I thought, well, it is to like minimize school, so there's that motivation. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he got all this done. so he's hoping for school to come to an end. Now that last day, as soon as he gets out, does he still hope that school would come to an end? No. Because hope has been fulfilled. Here we are. And so, look, we have this hope that anchors our soul, that keeps us steadfast, even though the wind and the waves might toss the boat back and forth. This hope in Christ is steadfast. This hope in the promise of God, that he's not only promised, but also sworn to. And then this hope that we will be with Christ, and this hope that follows Christ already where he has gone into the inner place behind the veil into the holiest of holies and the whole movement is that we will join him there and then hope will no longer be hope it will be fulfilled it's kind of a remarkable statement because it's not as if as royal priests to borrow the term from the Torah of course Peter mentions this but As royal priests, the goal isn't just to be near Christ, maybe maybe outside of the heavenly temple, maybe even in the inner place of the temple, the holy place. But no, the hope is to go into the holiest of holies there with him. Um, And the scriptures speak about this in many ways, even going so far as to say to be enthroned with him. Where Christ is there, we will be also. So, really remarkable things and unthinkable things, especially when you contrast this, that not, not all Levitical priests got to go into the holiest of holies. Not all are Levitical priests. Not all are of the tribe of Levi. Not all are Israelites. I mean, that we Gentiles all the way down, so to speak, on the lowest rung, would have this hope set before us that we will Um, with Christ enter the holiest of holies and there dwell with God and with his angels, archangels and the whole company of heaven alright, well that's the best I can do there I'm trying to flesh that section out anything I left unclear, if the Melchizedek stuff is unclear, don't worry, just hold your horses we're about to get into it all good? Alright, the Melchizedek theology has been introduced um, before, of course. If you go back to chapter 5, real quick, and uh, verse 6, you're going to see um, this reference already, Psalm 110, which is going to come back. So, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, we've been introduced to this idea before, and um, you know, even in, in verse 9 as this section ends, um, and being made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you recall, we went back to Genesis 14 and looked at this um, section of uh, Melchizedek, so we're not going to do that again. But this then is where he launches off to show that Um, Not only um, did God give the promise to Abraham, but we are one with Abraham, heirs of this promise. And it is impossible for God to lie. And our hope now in the promise of God in Christ Jesus is anchored, is is the anchor of our soul. And it is a hope that follows Jesus even before we ourselves have, have come with him to the holiest of holies how is he able to go into the holiest of holies and how are we able to go with him because he's a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek well what is the accusation being made sort of maybe in the background that jesus isn't a levite so why would he be a high priest or have any ability to go into the holiest of holies ah says the author of hebrews If you pay attention to what the Psalms say, Jesus is a priest. God declares him a priest not after the order of the Levites, which would have begun around the time of Mount Sinai. You can think roughly 1500 BC. But he began as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is older. It precedes. It goes all the way back to Abraham. And indeed, we're going to see the argument made that it's not actually even a temporal priesthood as such but this man melchizedek is without father or mother without beginning or end that is when you look at him in genesis and so this is an eternal priesthood to which christ belongs even preceding uh, the levitical priesthood so the Levitical priesthood then takes on that characteristic of all the law, um, that in terms of its function, it's temporary, that it, that it, deri- that it drives us to Christ and, and embellishes and amplifies Christ. All right, so chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high god now this is all how he's described of course melchizedek means king of righteousness king of salem salem is peace Um, all of this coming from genesis he met abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings so that's what abraham was doing remember he had to rescue lot and he won this really incredible battle he was outnumbered but he beat all these world powers rescuing lot so he returns from the slaughter of the kings and, and he, and he um, runs into this Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses him. Okay, so already what's in place, the greater blesses the lesser and so we're already seeing what's being set up here is that Melchizedek is going to be one who is greater than Abraham and ministers to Abraham. Of course, what's the point of this? That in Judaism you don't get any higher than Abraham. And the author of Hebrews rhetorically is working here saying, well, Melchizedek was, and we have a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 2, And to him, that is to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So he tithes. If you look at the study note, it says, Abraham recognized Melchizedek's priestly status by offering him a tithe. Tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Again, that's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also King of Salem. That is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Again, just think of this exegetically. He just shows up out of nowhere. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right. Now, some people think that Melchizedek actually is a theophany and actually is an appearance or apparition of Christ um, to Abraham. I, if that's what your view is, that's fine with me. I don't really have a problem with that. I don't have a problem if you reject that. It's an exegetical question an open question. It doesn't really affect one's theology. Um, do I really think that the author of Hebrews is asserting that? I No, I'm not convinced of that. Um, you can see in English, um, but resembling the Son of God. It seems to be his point is more of an exegetical point. Look at this figure. What are we going to learn from the text of Scripture from this figure? Well, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And he's got these Son of God titles, King of Righteousness, Prince of Peace, right? Um, Now, what is the author of Hebrews doing? He's not asserting like, hey, Christ seems to look like this guy, Or I bet this is what Christ's priesthood is. No, he's reading this through the lens of Psalm 110. We just looked at that in chapter 5, where God himself says, the Father says to the Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is taking God's proclamation that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he's saying, okay, well, what do we see here then when we look at Melchizedek? we see that he precisely resembles the Son of God who continues as a priest forever after this order of Melchizedek. Jesus himself certainly has neither father nor mother in the traditional sense. And he has no beginning of days or end of life. And so in these ways... Melchizedek resembles him he resembles Melchizedek and he continues as a priest forever. Okay, so far so good? Verse 4. See how great this man now we're back exegetically looking at Melchizedek. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Uh, look at the look at the study note on this founding father of the hebrews israelites and all who are justified by faith and you can see the note on romans four eleven for that but again we see abraham not just the father of many nations in terms of biology in terms of flesh but in terms of faith All right, verse 5 and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. Um, So that is, uh the the levites the levitical priests i mean um receive the tithes from the people and they themselves are mortal men but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives that is that he is not mortal so this is the immortal christ Um, if, you want to, if you want to see this as Melchizedek, there's not really any problem as long as you just understand his rhetoric is driving to Christ, the one who lives, the one who is immortal. And he's going to make that very clean uh, and clear in what is to come. Okay, But do you, see, do you see what's going on here? I know it's a complicated argument, but he's saying, look, the Levitical priests, they receive tithes from their brothers. There's a hierarchy there, if you will. The Levitical priests bless their brothers. But these are all under whom? Abraham. And to whom does Abraham pay a tithe? And who blesses Abraham? Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is higher than Abraham. Abraham is higher than the Levites who are higher than their brothers. Where's Christ fit in? Up at the absolute top. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If we're going to make a distinction, which I would argue is the case between Christ and Melchizedek, then Christ even far surpasses Melchizedek. Okay. So that's, the, in a sense, the argument that's being made here. No, I don't even think in a sense. I think that is the argument that's being made here. I think that there's other, other things we can glean from this, but <laughs> I think that that's the main point. All right, let's pause there, see if I've con- confused anyone here. I, I see a hand raising over here. It's fine. We can. Um, don't want to name any names, lest we be incarcerated in the metaverse in ten years.
1: This has always been a mystery to me. What is the significance of this in our Gentile Jewish scripture? What What should I? how do I grow in my faith because of this? And I am showing my...
0: Oh, it's great. It's a great question. Yeah. My illiteracy. I don't get it. No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So here's the surprise of the New Testament is that the Gentiles are included in salvation. It's the surprise and the mystery revealed that's been hidden before the foundations of the world now revealed in Christ that, that he is going to bring the gentiles in as well now how do we become sons of abraham by faith by sharing in the faith of abraham this is like paul's theology of well it even stems back to jesus remember they're all claiming to be sons of abraham and both john the baptist and jesus say no you don't you don't know what that means um and jesus is even going to contradict that abraham rejoiced to see my day Why are you not rejoicing if you're his sons? You're not his sons. The sons of Abraham rejoice to see me just as Abraham rejoiced. The sons of Abraham believe in the promise just as Abraham believed in the promise. Not all who claim to be sons of Abraham are in fact sons of Abraham. Not all who are Israel are in fact true Israel because true Israel are those who believe. And then Paul goes on to describe how we Gentiles by faith have been grafted into this family. How we claim Abraham as our father, not of the flesh, but of faith. And so we're grafted in, and now who is Abraham's priest? Christ, the one who is after the order of Melchizedek. He's our priest, not the Levitical priesthood. Indeed, that's been set aside. Now our priest is Christ. And in fact, he makes us royal priests. So that's the theology. That's how we're brought in. But we shouldn't help but marvel. We shouldn't help but pay attention to the hierarchy that's now been set aside in Christ, but that was present there where, I mean, just to trace this argument once more, you have have Melchizedek, Abraham, the Levitical priesthood, the other Israelites, and Gentiles. And now we've been brought in and we have been brought into Abraham who is greater than the Levitical priesthood, greater than the temple and law of the Old Covenant. And in him we share faith in not just Melchizedek of Genesis 14 but in the one who holds the office of Melchizedek eternally according to the word of God in Psalm 110. So, we Gentiles have been elevated and brought up and brought in and uh, Paul marvels about this I mean arguably this is like the main thesis and thrust of Ephesians is that this miracle uh, and an unforeseen mystery has occurred that God intended salvation for us as well and to lift us into this heavenly holy family and hierarchy setting us under Christ Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Saint Paul talks about this everywhere because it's his passion. He's a he's the missionary to the Gentiles, uh, in of course in um, he makes this big argument in uh, Romans nine through eleven that you know what advantage is uh, is it to be a Jew and to have all the oracles? of have got much in every way, but then as he goes on to say we you know they have rejected Christ that the Gentiles might be brought in and the Gentiles are being brought in so that out of jealousy they might turn and be brought back in as well and so he's got this whole section of how we Gentiles have been grafted in and then and then a warning to us as Gentiles not to be pompous or arrogant or assume that this is our birthright um, he grafted us in and and if he's you know, I forget Paul's exact rhetoric here, but if he's trimmed off the dead branches of Judaism, um, be careful lest he trim you off as well, because you die in the presumptuousness of your sin. Um, so, in other words, there's humility and there's oneness shared. Um, whether you are of biological Hebrew descent or biological Gentile descent, we are all grafted into one tree, um, living and uh, faithful to Christ. Okay, thank you for that. Let's, um, let's look to move on here. Uh, we're going to do more with Melchizedek, uh, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... Alright, so think about this. Sinai is where the law is given. And let's look at the fullness of the law here. We can talk about the ceremonial, we can talk about the civil, we can talk about the moral, just all of it. Okay. And, but particularly here, with the law come, and with the ceremonial comes the institution of the Levitical priesthood. Comes the institution of the sacrifices the dietary laws, all of this stuff. Okay, So if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, like this whole structure, all these rules that went along with it, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So what on earth is God talking about in Psalm 110 when he says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek if he had already established all that was necessary and needed in the Levitical priesthood? That's essentially what the author of Hebrews here is asking. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, God would never have said anything about you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He did, thus the Levitical priesthood was temporal for a time and unable to. To uh, attain perfection, completeness, wholeness in the sight of God. Thus, we needed um, this. High priest after the order of Melchizedek. So just, I don't know, It's it looks like one giant sentence, so let's do it again. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Yeah, why couldn't he have just come into the Levitical priesthood and been the Levitical priest of all Levitical priests? Because the law itself is an insufficient, the first covenant itself is an insufficient covenant to save. Of what does the forgiveness of sins consist? The blood of bulls and goats that have to be re-sacrificed. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you see how he's laying the foundation for these things. That even even if Jesus, why didn't he just make Jesus the Levitical priest of all Levitical priests? Because that priesthood in and of itself is insufficient. That testament in and of itself is insufficient. The blood sacrifices that atone for sins in and of themselves are insufficient. That's the point he's, he's making here. Yes. Uh, yeah, hand up here again.
1: That speaks to what Jesus was always having to contend with with the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. They were, as I recall, they were some. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Some must have perceived this. I just, I, my recall of the Jewish people interacting with Jesus was always in a in a rather feisty, contentious. Mm. Um, back and forth, right?
0: Yeah, it's a mixed bag. If you look at it, at times Jesus has great crowds of Hebrew yeah. people following him. Um, at times, mm-hmm. those crowds depart from him because they don't like what he says.
1: Yeah, make a comment about his being on the cross and all that went on there. Um,
0: yeah, so we're. we're d- it going- was a
1: learning moment. For the Jewish nation, wasn't it?
0: Oh well, yeah, that's an an understatement. Yeah, (laughs) right. So yeah, we're we're gonna get there, Um, and and part of what he's part of what he's laying out here, and he's going to be explicit about this. He's just, as it were, sort of starting at the top because he's starting at um, Abraham, and he's working down from Abraham to the to the Levites, and to the Levitical priesthood, and to this. Um, what we would call the Old Testament just don't think of the collection of books think of Moses on Sinai sprinkling the people with the blood think of Moses instituting the Levitical priesthood right down to its vestments and the temple and what kinds of sacrifices are going to take place think of all of that right? and now what his point is going to be is that earlier than that above that Because that in and of itself was temporary and imperfect, God has given us a greater high priest. And he himself is going to be high priest. He himself is going to be temple. Remember, as Jesus says, uh, um, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And he was speaking about his body. He is going to be the once and for all sacrifice. I think that's your point on the cross. Yep, the lamb whose blood is shed. He is going to be the Passover lamb that we royal priests, well, that all the people of God, I mean, rather partake of. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb that we as royal priests eat and are made holy. Um, So yes, the cross is going to be the event um, of the New Testament. And then to partake of that New Testament, Jesus is going to say, drink of this cup. This cup is my blood of the New Testament, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So again, contrast, Moses slaying the bulls and sprinkling the blood on the people, instantiating the Old Covenant. Jesus is slain on the cross, and he gives his blood to drink, instantiating the new covenant. So you have old covenant and new covenant, and you see the temporary nature of the old covenant, and how it couldn't bring anything to completion. It could only point to the one who could bring it all to completion. And that's what the author of Hebrews is slowly leading us toward. Okay, so um, we don't often think this way, but we need to. It's more biblically accurate that when the old covenant is given and the priesthood is instantiated, that priesthood is inextricable from, the, from its function described in the law and from the various sacrifices and ordinance investments and all of that, right? Such that if you, these are all intertwined, such that if you are going to get a new priesthood, you've got to get a, an entire new law. Right? And that's going to be his point in, num- in verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Um, look at the study note on verse 12, just so you can be assured I'm not making this up. The law stipulates the rituals and ceremonies of worship and its fulfillment depended on the Levitical priesthood. Changing the priesthood means changing the nature of worship. So what is his rhetoric? We've already moved past that which is old, the old covenant with the Levitical priests and all the laws. And we've moved on to the new covenant, the cup of Christ's blood, and this new worship in spirit and truth, receiving his blood, receiving him as high priest, sacrifice, temple, all of it. Um, So with the new priesthood comes an entirely new Law or an entirely new, um, what we would, as Americans call, worship experience. (laughs) Okay? So, yeah, as um, there's a change in a priesthood, it's necessary to change the law as well. Oh, yes, please.
2: I remember at the beginning of Hebrews, we talked about the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood this Melchizedek makes perfect sense if it's referenced in Psalms and then it's brought up again in Hebrews and puts the connection between Christ and the King of Salem. Yeah. Um, And I like that a lot. Now, is there any reference to Aaron as far as any priesthood activity between the Levitical and this reference to Melchizedek?
0: I'm not certain I understand your question
2: when um, did the when did Aaron or his descendants um, am I wrong in saying that they were the caretakers of the temple
0: yeah so Aaron was a Levite and he
2: was a Levite as well
0: mm-hmm yeah and Moses was a Levite oh there there it is yeah they're Levites and then God grants Aaron and his sons to be the, pri- the fir- very first priests. Okay,
2: that's where I mixed mm-hmm. it up. I'm sorry.
0: And so all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Priests. Mm-hmm. And there is, we can look to Aaron himself as a type of Christ, and we can look to the Levitical priesthood itself in a twofold way, at least, as a type of Christ, and to a degree also as a type of the royal priesthood. But these are just types and shadows. They're not identical. And that's the author of Hebrew's point. Um, Christ isn't the Levitical priest of all Levitical priests. He doesn't fulfill it so much as He precedes it, supersedes it, post-seeds it in every way. Yeah, and every way um, is more than what that was. That old covenant with its old priesthood, with its old sacrifices, was for a time and a purpose, and that is to drive us to Christ.
2: Would these uh, Hebrews have been aware of Psalm 110? I mean, not all were probably literate. And, and Abraham's reference to Melchizedek. Would they have been? Yes,
0: they would have been very. It familiar seems with like
2: this, this mm-hmm. was a compelling argument to them.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and, and it' worthwhile pointing out that e, uh, that once again, here we are in the New Testament scriptures, and the New Testament scriptures they don't they don't tend to work like this. Oh, this just in, straight from Jesus. Let me tell you the new theology. A remarkable thing about the New Testament scriptures is they're always based on what. The Old Testament scriptures. This entire argument is based on Psalm 110 and Genesis 14. where And, you know, extended via um, Abraham. So, to summarize, Psalm 110 and Genesis. This entire text is based on that. Assuming you know something that comes to us via exodus and leviticus on account of the levitical priesthood and all of that but it's a thoroughly biblical that is a thoroughly old testament argument the author of hebrews is essentially doing sola scriptura he's making his entire case based on the scriptures even even the earlier chapter the earliest chapter i mean chapter one where he's doing the compare contrast with the angels and all of this he's doing nothing but drawing on psalmody his entire argument is based in the Old Testament scriptures. And by the way, the more you look at the New Testament, and I'm in process of this with you. I'm not like someplace on high, like I've got this all figured out. But the more attention you pay to the argument being made in the books, not even so much the words, just where is this argument coming from? It's all based in the Old Testament. That's, its, that's the New Testament's appeal to authority, is our argument is based on the scriptures. And the scriptures at that time are the Old Testament. Luther, in his typical sassy way, was asked, you know, why do we have a New Testament then? And he responded, because men are wicked. That's it. You don't need a New Testament. Everything about the suffering and death of Jesus is found in the Old Testament, as he himself says. The only reason God gives us a New Testament, again, Luther being a little sassy, take it as you will, the only reason that we need a New Testament is because men are so wicked as to not believe the old. And we have to have everything spelled out and argued and made abundantly clear. And so God does this to condescend to us in our weakness and wickedness. I don't know. It's a spicy take. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't, as, Lu- as is typically the case with Luther, that's not the only thing he has to say. So um, take the hyperbole uh, for what it's worth. Did I see another hand? Any hands growing? No, we're okay? All right. But Luther's Luther
1: seems rather quick to make that judgment
0: on. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hyperbole. It's to make a point, it's yes, to exaggerate okay. that it's the Old Testament punch. scriptures are yeah. sufficient in themselves.
1: I am just I'm putting myself within the context, and it's unnecessary, but I, it, within the context of Christ's being on the cross and, and the people at that time trying to understand what this is all about. I mean, the, the profundity of
0: it. Yeah.
1: it was not grasped.
0: Yes, correct. Correct. So nobody understood the cross when the cross was happening. I think that that's one. I think that's basically guaranteed. I, it's after the fact, when the Holy Spirit comes and um, reveals to them everything that He said and did and what it meant. Um, I think that that's when the knowledge and understanding of the cross comes through. Um, the Holy, the Holy Spirit is the one who causes the apostles and eyewitnesses to understand what it actually is and to then pen the books we know as the New Testament scriptures that tell us what it is. We just need to realize that the New Testament wasn't written, I mean, like the book of John was not written while John was sitting at the cross. It was written decades later. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all the books of the New Testament written decades later. So these events occurred, eyewitnesses remember them, the Holy Spirit's given at Pentecost the Holy Spirit brings to mind all these things, and he doesn't do so in a flash either. Like, you know, um, Matthew's not just sitting there at Pentecost. He receives the Holy Spirit and goes, I just, I just got downloaded the book of Matthew. <laughs> you know, this is, this is years of reflection. Um, of hearing the scriptures, of studying the scriptures, of being led by the Holy Spirit, of being um, taught by the Holy Spirit, of participating in the sacrifice—I uh, mean, participating in the sacrifice that Christ made once and for all uh, on the cross, given in the body and blood of the Holy Eucharist. Participating in these things, understanding these things, realizing, these, piecing these things together, and coming up with these masterpieces called the Gospels coming up with the fullness of, of Christian and apostolic theology as we know it. Um, we do ourselves a disservice if we think the Holy Spirit just downloaded this instantaneously. Um, these these things took years to build and put together and understand and be handed down to us. Yeah. Um, Jesus said that he sent a helper and he will testify of me. Exactly. So all all those chapters in John from, I don't know what it is, the guys are studying John, what is it, like 15 through 17 or something. It's just all about the Holy Spirit. And it's everything I'm talking about. Jesus is telling them that this is what's going to happen. We're already told in many and various ways that they're all basically clueless. Okay, But it's a fun thing to do. It's a fun thing to do to just try to think of drawing out this chronology. Okay, So Jesus says all these things the night, let me see if I can do this right. Yeah, the night when he's betrayed, he says all these things. They're like What's he talking about? You know, I think finally, like, he says something plainly, and they're like, oh, now he's talking in plain speech. Do you remember this part? Which is kind of also ironic because they probably don't get it. Um, so they don't have a clue. Jesus is saying all these things. He goes to his death, he's raised. They start piecing it together. They start piecing it together. Pentecost comes, and all of a sudden, they really begin to see things clearer than ever before. But they all don't sit down at their desks the day, you know, Pentecost afternoon and pen their Gospels and Epistles. Decades transpire before they're like, you know, remember what he said to us in the upper room about the Holy Spirit? Isn't that precisely what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon us and we remembered all these things and we've seen all these things and we've now penned all these things and it's all come to fruition and God himself has established the veracity of what we're saying and writing by miracles that only God could do confirming the testimony of our mouths confirming what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through us you know it's this process and it's um it's great and beautiful and fun to think about and much and it takes us at least in a mental space that's much more accurate you know okay so, uh, yeah, the author of Hebrews here, um, doing his deep dive on the Old Testament scriptures and coming up with these themes so that he can convince Christians who have come from this background not to retreat back to the inferior, to Judaism, which, um, and to the Old Covenant, which, at its best, could not bring about perfection. Even before it was begun, we have this priesthood uh, after the order of Melchizedek and this understanding that there's got to be something greater than the Levitical priesthood. All right, let's see if we can pick up um, midway through and make sense of this. Well, I don't know, verse 12 will be okay. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Um, We grasp this because as soon as Christ is the high priest, um, you know, anointed, installed on via the cross if you want to be technical at his um, resurrection no I think the cross anyway whatever but that's then, then it all changes from there so what does that mean it means after his crucifixion and resurrection there's no need for the Levitical priesthood there's no need for the temple it's why the temple curtain is torn at his death um, he is the, he's the priest he's the temple there's no need for further sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. So all the, all the ceremonial laws, civil laws, this is all abrogated and changed. All that remains is the moral law. But that's why the author of Hebrews is saying, look, when the priesthood changed, all the law as well. So don't go back to these old things. You already have the new and better things in Christ. Verse 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. What tribe did Jesus belong to? Judah. That's all he's saying here. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent so think of genealogy here but by the power of an indestructible life for it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek Okay, this is a contrast between Christ and the order of Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood that's all this is Um, we'll try not to get too tangled up here um, so another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who's that? Jesus. Who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements. That is not. is, you're not going to go find this in the ceremonial law. You're not going to go find this in Leviticus. Okay, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Thus, his Um, So look at the language here, look at the grammar. Who has become priest, now here's the negative, which we're going to get rid of here in a minute, but who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not in the way of the Levites, Okay. but now let's go back and do the grammar. We'll take out the negative clause. Who has become a priest by the power of an indestructible life? Okay, so not by way of the old law which has been set aside, not by way of mortal priests and genealogy and it passing on and all of that is has the inference of death and change. Um, but he is of indestructible life. Now, where is that demonstrated par excellence? Of course, in his death and resurrection. So that's why I kind of say like he's he's made a priest via his death and resurrection in the author of Hebrews. That's like his... So when he becomes priest, we would call it an ordination, um, but through his death and resurrection, through his indestructible life. And then how does he confirm this? On what basis is he stating this? And he goes back to one ten again. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not by bodily descent, not by being a member of the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. You are, how do we know it's indestructible? Because you are a priest forever. Yeah. So even though he dies, yet will he live. And we know that on the basis of, you are a priest forever. I mean, think about this. With this one line, Jesus would know of his own death and resurrection. Because the scriptures say you are a priest forever. New priesthood, so there's going to be a new sacrifice. Ding, ding, ding. And yet you will rise because you're a priest not for a time but forever. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect but on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to god now this verse ties in linguistically to preceding verses the first half of it for on one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. That goes back to verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been? But it's not, so there was. The second half. Um, so away with the Levitical priesthood in this temporary old covenant. But on the other hand, this is verse 19, the second half. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Namely, who? Christ and the priesthood in his priesthood that is forever after the order of Melchizedek, through which we draw near to God. Now look at that. Just look at the language. Hope. Draw near to God. Where have we seen that before? That goes back to chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place of behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, to the holiest of holies. It's kind of also this critique on like the American evangelical take of like, well, when Jesus dies on the cross and the temple curtain is torn, it means we all have free access to God. There's no such thing as a holy of holies. I think the author of Hebrews would strongly disagree with any of that. He would say, no, there is a holiest of holies. Do you not remember that the holiest of holies on earth merely is a is a kind of model and sketch of that which is in heaven, and in fact there is, and in fact that's where God is, but you have access to him only in and through Christ, this new priest after the order of Melchizedek. We follow him even now via hope, but soon enough that hope will be fulfilled and we will follow him into the holiest of holies in heaven, where we shall behold God face to face. Our sins cleansed by the blood of this Lamb, by the blood of this high priest. And Pastor, those who have died Yes. Are they, do they have awareness
1: of, of the, access, the access to the holy of holies?
0: Yeah, it's a great question and it's a really t- difficult question. So those who have died before us, like those who are in heaven right now, um, in what sense are they in the holiest of holies, in that presence of God or not? It's you know, I, it's that kind of question requires such precision. I don't know that if we can know. In certain respects, it would seem to be the case um, because heaven is in the presence of God. In other respects, though, there is is or does seem to be a transition between our experience of, of heaven and our experience of God in heaven and what occurs, as depicted in the end of Revelation, where there's the new heavens and the new earth. We are all raised in our body. Remember what Job says? Yet in my flesh I shall see God. And we're also told there that Christ himself becomes the temple. There's there's no temple because Christ himself is their temple. So I'm a little torn. I want to say, yes, we see God, and yes, we enter the holiest of holies in heaven, but not yet in the, in the way that is fully described at the end of Revelation. Not yet in the way that we behold God with our face, with our eyes, and see him and dwell. So that's the best I can do with that question. When it comes to real precision about the intermediate states, the scriptures don't give us that. Or what they do give us lends itself to some debate as opposed to a definitive answer. okay um we're just about out of time where are we here uh 20 20 yeah we just finished 19 let's let's try to go a little further because this whole argument's connected and it was not without an oath okay now we see how he's circling back to the oath that he introduces um all the way back in where is it uh verse 16 maybe For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, so verse 20, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath, By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. In other words, are the Levitical priests priests forever? No. In the first place, because they don't have an indestructible life, they die. And in the second place, God never swore with an oath the Levitical priesthood abides forever. But guess what he did swear with an oath? The priesthood of Christ endures forever the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you that is my son that is christ are a priest forever so which priesthood do you want to do you want to have and that's the point so don't go back to the empty hebrew old covenant that's already been superseded in christ it's already been set aside and abrogated in christ you have the greatest thing ever And then I think, I think 22 is best understood in this context. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what does that mean? Because God has sworn that he forever with an indestructible life, um, in that sense, he's the guarantor. And can you not see in which sense his covenant is the better covenant? And if you can't, that's okay, because he's going to spend a lot of chapters explaining that in detail. That's what's coming, is how now we've talked a lot about how the priesthood, one priesthood is superior to the other. The priesthood of Christ is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. Um, Now we're going to, as we move along, I should say, we're going to talk about how the covenant itself that Jesus brings is equally as better than the old covenant that was brought through the angels to Moses. All right, the Lord be with you.